You may be seated. Last week we began to look at John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. If you weren't with us, I just want to make quick reference to that sermon and setting up the sermon today. We'll be in this passage again today, John 5, 1 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and join me as we look at the despair of mankind and the glory of Christ. Last week we looked at this miracle, the third miracle John records for us. The first was at the wedding feast in Cana. The second in Cana also in that same region when he healed the official son and then It says that he went to Jerusalem, and on his trip into Jerusalem, there's no mention of anybody being with him, his disciples or anybody like that, though they might have been there. He was going to observe a feast, which we said last week is probably the Feast of Pentecost, one of the three major feasts of the the men of of, uh, the Jewish nation. They were all required to go. So Jesus, in keeping the law, went to every one of these feasts in his life. He went there and passing through what today is called the Pool of St. Anne. It's two pools actually joined together by five porches. You know, for a long time, uh, the critics of the Bible said this place didn't exist. There was no mention of Bethesda. And then the golden scrolls of the Qumran community were discovered and a mention to a place similar to Bethesda. And when they went there and dug, they found believe it or not, an ancient pool which had been in Jerusalem. They called it St. Anne. The Scripture calls it uh, Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda. The sheep's gate was there and he entered in and when he entered, there were many lame people. That word there is very important. We'll see that today. Invalids, helpless people, blind, lame, and paralyzed. He goes on to categorize them. When we talk through this last week, and we won't do that in detail, except to say, we did say it relates directly to our salvation, didn't we? I mean, the reality is, we are like the invalid. We're unable to get up and go and find our healing. We're helpless, hopeless in this world without Christ. And then Christ finds us. The picture of this healing, if you read it, as I'm even as I'm talking, maybe you review over it, The picture of this miracle is not that the man cried out to him. A lot of people did that. Remember in the ministry of Christ, we're going to see others who were beggars and who cried out, heal me or save me or help me. This man has no acknowledgement of Christ. Christ approaches him and says, do you want to be healed? Now, we said that sounds like a crazy question, but yet it was setting up what Christ would do in healing this man. And so here this helpless man is, and Jesus goes to him. He doesn't come to Jesus. Jesus points out his need. He doesn't even really uh, catch what Jesus is doing there, but he says, you know, sir, I can't be healed because I can't get in the water fast enough. And, And others go down before me, and they're healed. Hopeless. See, he's pointing to his hopelessness. And then Jesus says three commands. Get up, take up, and continue walking the rest of your life. That's what he said. He healed him miraculously by the spoken word. He didn't touch him. He didn't uh, tell him to do any process. It wasn't a long period of time. The man had been paralyzed 38 years. And then in a moment, in a spoken word, the power of Jesus Christ heals the man. 
Okay, in the story, as it continues, and we stopped in 9a, and then it continues down. And we see that this man went on and was confronted by the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, because he was carrying his, he was carrying his uh, mat, his uh, straw mat. And it was the Sabbath. Now, I'm going to resist getting into that because that's next week's message. Because this passage deals with an issue that's very important to our lives, and that's the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? What was the intention of the Sabbath? Should we observe the Sabbath? Are we observing the Sabbath? Has the Sabbath been changed from the seventh day to the first day? All of these questions are in our minds often, you know, and others posed them to us, critically even as the Jews did to this man. You're breaking the law, man. You're carrying your mat. That's not necessary to your daily living. What they didn't realize was that mat was his living. It was all he had. And he... Carried it because that was his, uh, the picture of Scripture is that's his only possession at this point. He has nothing. That is his home. That's it. So he carries it. Now his response is, the man who, told, who healed me told me to pick it up. You know, it's kind of like, well, you know, I was lame. I was paralyzed. I could not walk. And this miraculous thing happened. A man said, get up. And my legs got strength. I stood up. And then he said, take up. Now, who am I to argue with a man that just gave me power to walk? I took it up. That's what he's saying to him. He told me to do it. Well, they say, who is it? He said, you know what? I don't even know. Isn't that amazing? Here this man is, 38 years, laying on a, a straw mat, helpless, hopeless, the world around him decayed, stinking, full of invalids. Somebody heals him, and he doesn't even stop to say, Hey, what's your name, buddy? Total disregard of who Jesus is. He had no faith. We said that last week. He had no faith to heal himself. No faith to be healed by. He was empty completely. And Jesus' power is what healed him. Right? And so he says, I don't know who he was. And then later, Jesus returns to him in private. And look at what Jesus says to him there. He says, go and sin no more. That nothing worse comes upon you. Worse than 38 years of paralysis? And what is Jesus talking about when He says, go and sin no more? What does this man's paralysis have to do with sin? This part of the story is really, this part of the account of John is really where the focus is. Telling the details of the healing are simply to get John to the theme. And that is, the theme is that the, the world is despairing. They are broken. We are broken. And Christ is glorious. It's the picture John's drawing for us. It's really not about the lame man. It's really not about the Jewish leaders. It's about Jesus Christ. So we see this. There's two reasons I think this is placed where it is in the account of John's Gospel. First of all, it's the, first, it's, the, it's the miracle that marks the beginning of the angry oppression of the Jewish leaders towards Christ. Up until this point, they've been suspicious of Him. They haven't believed in Him. They've got a lot of questions. But when He breaks the Sabbath and then dares to even call God His own Father, they begin to oppress Him. That's the first reason John puts it. From this point forward, there's going to be direct opposition to everything Jesus teaches or does 
from these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees. Second, I believe the miracle is here because it points out and illustrates the fact that Christ came for the weak and the helpless. Now, I'm not alone in believing this. Almost every uh, person I read pointed to these two reasons. So I feel safe in making that assumption. These are the two reasons I believe it's here. Maybe there's some others, but I believe these are the main point. This is the main point. That Christ is going to be opposed from this point forward because of His miraculous, unbelievable, godly, godlike, and God-in-flesh ministry. They can't take it. Second, it's because He shows that He came not for the religious, but for the weak and the helpless. There are a lot of modern examples of this man's condition, this lame man, this invalid, the despair that is all around us. You know, it's easy to pick on the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. You know, those are easy. The maladjusted. The people who, as Rick and Bubba says, you know, when they go bad, they go real bad. They kill people, cut them up, and eat them later. It's easy to look at those people and say the world's got a problem. It's a little more difficult for us to deal with the intellectuals. People that Jesus dealt with and Paul deals with in their ministries, it's hard for us to deal with these people because they're very reasonable, seemingly reasonable in their assertions. They're very intelligent. They don't contradict themselves. And many of them live very God, or God, godly looking lives on the outside. They're very moral people. You know, I've mentioned uh, Christopher Hitchens before and I, I don't recommend his, him as a reading partner for uh, just anybody, but if you're interested in uh, political critique, social critique, even to be challenged in your faith, he's a good person to read. He's a great thinker. You would agree with him on about 90% of what he writes. Very conservative. Very conservative. Yet, in his elitism, he has reasoned away the need for religion. He says, in one quote I found of his, Who would dare to believe that God lived as a human? That was his, attack. That was his question for Christianity. You know, all these religions he went through, and he said, there's no need for that religion. Atheism answers that question on it. But his attack against Christianity is, how dare any of you people Believe that this God you say you believe in can actually live in a human body. How dare you? Indignant against the Christian faith. And he's not alone in this. I want to read you a few more. I've begun the practice of reading guys that are uh, involved in social critique. And Richard Dawkins is another man who does this often. Listen to this. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation, Dawkins says. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running in fear of their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds of are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. His response, it must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, 
this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Listen to his belief about the universe. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes. That's Dawkins' way of talking about sin. Genetic. Selfish genes. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, or which some have called it fate, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That gives you hope, doesn't it? I mean, when your world comes crashing down, don't you want some philosopher to say to you, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no justice, there's only luck and blind chance. Natural cycles of selfish genes and electrons that make up a universe. He goes on to say in another article, to fill a world with religions of the Abrahamic kind. Now, when he says Abrahamic kind, he's really talking about Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Three that claim Abraham as their father. To fill the world with religions of the Abrahamic kind is the littering of the streets with loaded guns. It's like littering the streets with loaded guns. Do not be surprised if they are used. (laughs) He's clever, isn't he? He's clever. But he's the representation of people in this room. Some have lived, unlike him, under the guise of religion to cover for your moralism so that you can be relieved of any thought of a real God who takes real interest in your real life. See, we've been trained well. Most of us would never stoop to the level of these two men. We would never say, oh, the world is just a bunch of electrons and chance and luck. We've learned the religious words to say to make it look like we believe in God. But our lives say we don't really believe in that God. Practically, we don't live as if that God does exist, this God we read about in the Scripture. Practically, we are atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens. They just have the guts, the lack of fear, we might say, to come out and say what many people live inside the guise, the false picture the false perception of religion. The Jews of Jesus' day believed much of the same thing that these men are saying. They did not believe in a personal God. They believed in a great creator God, a deistic God. And we can find it easy to attack the Dahmers of the world. We can even find it easy to attack the Hitchens and the Dawkins of the world. But the reason I want to say what I do today is not really for them. It's for us. 
Because the reality is most of us live without a fault for the glory of Jesus Christ. The best among us live that way. We would never form it in words like these men do. We would never dare to say something like that that's so blasphemous. But when our lives are looked at on a daily basis at the smallest levels, we don't really believe in much other than chance, circumstance, and blind fate. How would you say that is evident? Well, it's evident in my life. See, it's easy for me to see it in me It's easier for you if I point the finger at myself. So I'll point the finger at myself. This unbelief they phrase in total rejection, I phrase in unbelief. You know, I'd like for you to believe that my whole life is consumed with the glory of Christ, but the reality is that often, on a daily basis, I become come consumed with my own thoughts, with my own name, with how I look to you and to the community. I become consumed in my own life with my sin. Sin. Real sin. Not, not the sin like maybe we think of in Dahmer or these men, but real sin that you and I deal with. Sin is the devaluing of Christ saying that anything is more important even for a moment than He is, treasuring other things besides Him, hoarding things. And see, I'm a hoarder. I'm one who likes to keep. You have to be careful when you use that word in the pulpit. I'm I'm a person who likes to keep things for me, my family, you as a congregation, money, Desires, although they might be good desires in and of themselves, not sinful, but yet when I keep them kept up in my heart, hold to them, cling to them, they become idols, real idols. And so it's easy to point to the outside at a man like Dahmer or Hitler. It's easy to point to the outside of the rationalists like Hitchens and Dawkins and say, you know, they don't believe in the glory of Christ. But it's much more important that we look at our own lives and say, I'm an idolater. I don't believe in Christ the way I say I do. I find myself all the time falling short of the glory of God. Raising up some new treasure in a high place. Saying, this is enough. I'm satisfied. When it's anything but Christ. That's idolatry and unbelief. And we're in the same condition that the lame man found himself in when Jesus found him at the pool. It's the same. You say, well, I can walk. Yeah. But like Jesus said, He would say to us, go and sin no more lest something worse come upon you. What could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Is the question I had to ask as I study this passage. And the answer is simple. Eternal separation in eternal judgment and damnation from an eternally holy God. And we call that place hell. That's worse than not being able to walk. But the fact is, I'm so sinful 
that as I study this passage, I come to the reality that at times I think it's worse if I couldn't walk. Have you ever found yourself there? It's easy to get philosophical and say, oh, I'd do anything for Jesus. It's another thing to live in true faith and honor of Him in such a way that even if He took your health, your abilities, your treasures, your family, He took it all and He said, you have none of that, you say, He's enough. That's the glory of Christ in this passage. That was overlooked by this man who was healed. Who told you to pick up your mat? It's the Sabbath. Who told you to do this work? I don't know. Total disregard of the glory of Christ. And it's easy to punch holes at him, punch holes at Dahmer and Hitler and Hitchens and Dawkins. And it's a whole lot harder when the, we become introspective, look in our own hearts and say, I'm the same guy they are. I do the same things. All of mankind is impotent. Impotent. In verses 2 through 7, we see this displayed for us in this physical picture of this man who needed a healing. The natural condition of every man is pictured in verse 2 when it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. In verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids. That's the picture that John is drawing for us of that setting where Jesus heals this man, but also deeper than that, a setting of what the whole world looks like. Invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's, that's the picture of the whole world, biblically. That's what the natural state of all mankind is, impotent. The picture of man given here is throughout the Bible. If, if we turn to Romans chapter 3, we come face to face with Paul's description of humanity. Verse 9, What then, are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we all... Have already, for we have charged already, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one is, understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the picture of humanity. Painted for us in John chapter 5 in physical terms, a man paralyzed, laying among a bunch of paralyzed, invalid, blind people. Physically. But that's the spiritual description of mankind. Lost. Invalids. No hope in this world. Romans 5, verse 6. This, this verse, if you're at John chapter 5, verse 3, you might write in the notation margins, Romans 5, verse 6. There's a reason for that. Look at Romans 5, 6, where he says, that Paul writes, For while we were still weak... You see that word weak? That word in the original, astheneo, that is the word used by John in chapter 5 verse 3. And in, these, in this place there were many invalids. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, for while we were still invalids, weak people, hopeless, helpless, in need of help and healing. When we were there, 
Christ died for us. That's the picture of what Christ did for us, painted in John chapter 5 in the healing of this man. When we see the rape of a child, as John Piper talked about this week in his radio program by an uncle, he, he told the story, a real story. He's been in ministry 40 years. That's one thing you get when you've been in ministry 40 years is a lot of applicable stories because you see it all. Because man has fallen completely. In his ministry, he had to help a family through the fact they found out that their three daughters had been raped repeatedly by their uncle and now had contracted a sexual disease. One of them three years old. She'll live with it the rest of her life. That's the world we live in. And it's easy to look at that guy and say he's a terrible, miserable, rotten, no good sinner and he deserves what God gives him. And yet, I'm not any different in substance than he is. But for the grace of God, I would be him. But because of God's grace and through Christ, just like this man was healed, I've been healed. So what's the difference in me and that uncle? Christ. And Christ alone. What's the difference in me and Dawkins? Christ. He's far more intelligent than me. It couldn't be that I was smarter than him. It's Christ. What's the difference in me and Hitler, as everybody likes to throw up as an example? Well, there's no difference in substance. I'm the same as him. But by the grace of God, I've been changed. I moved from being an invalid to being able to walk. Not by my faith, but by His gift of faith into my life and by His grace. That's the difference in me and Him. Not substance, but the substitute for me, which is in Christ. You know, Piper said he looked in that dad's face and he didn't know what to say. And then the dad said, if you hadn't preached that message on the sovereignty of God three weeks back, Pastor, I couldn't live today. But because I know He is in sovereign, loving, gracious, merciful, just God, I have hope. What's the solution to invalids? Not self-help programs. Christ. What's the solution to my failure? Christ. Your failure? Christ. Christ and Christ alone. That's it. That's the picture in John 5, painted for us in an invalid who was paralyzed. Sinful thoughts and intentions in my own heart, in your heart this week, the only remedy is Christ. Until I see Christ as most glorious and most worthy of being treasured, I will sin repeatedly. And even after I see Him that way, at any moment that I stop seeing Him that way, I will sin. I will, and you will. It's not about effort and working harder and doing the ten steps to being a godly person. It's about clinging to Jesus Christ alone and saying, Oh, Jesus, I'm an invalid. 
Give me strength. Give me power. Give me healing. Give me life. That's the picture of the gospel. The gift is Jesus and only He is a gift. The need of mankind is only met by God's grace. Mankind is blind. In John 3, 3, Jesus says you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you be born again. Mankind is blind. We're lame. In 9, 1 through 2, it says that when Jesus entered the boat across the Sea of Galilee, they brought to Him a man who was paralyzed. His friends brought Him. He was lame. He was unable to walk. And Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. Very similar to this instance. Different, but very similar. He was lame. We are paralyzed. Romans 7, verse 18, Paul says, I find in my members this, that I want to do good, and yet I do not have the strength to do it. Within myself, I have no strength to do it. We are paralyzed. We are lame. We are blind. That's the condition we're all in. And thank God that His grace is specific to those needs. Look at verse 5. In five, verse 5, we see Jesus say, John writes, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. One man was there. A multitude of invalids. And Jesus says, or John says there was one man there. One is specific. He didn't just lavish out in specifically the healing for the deepest root problem of mankind. Although there's common grace, salvation comes to those who are His sheep. It's specific. It works into the heart of those who are chosen. It is sufficient. In verse 9, we see the sufficiency of this grace, of this salvation, of this healing. He says, get up. Take up your bed, walk. And at once the man was healed. At once. It's sufficient. He didn't need to go do anything to receive his healing. God's grace was enough. It's specific and it's sufficient to meet the condition of blind, lame, paralyzed, invalid humans like me and you. Secondly, we see in this passage that all of God's grace is given through His Son. Verse 16 through 18. We're headed to a close. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. This is the thing about Jesus Christ. You cannot accept Him as a mere teacher of good things. The world's tried that. You can't even say He's a good man. He's God or He's a blasphemous, treasonous man that deserved what He got on the cross. Either He is who He says He is or He is a complete fraud and He's not worthy of any attention from us. You can't have Him as a good man. The Jews understood that. Verse 18. They did not make the mistake the Arians in the centuries that follow would make to say that God, God is God and Jesus is a man and He has some of God in Him. No, 
He is 100% God and 100% man. And the Jews understood that he believed that about himself because they say he put himself as an equal to God. See, they're not upset at him because he claims to be godly. They're upset at him. They claim to be godly. He claimed to be God. And they noticed that. They recognized that. This is the first place in John's gospel where the people recognized, the lost world recognized, this is God. And do you see what they did? They acted out Romans chapter 1. They had a knowledge of God, yet they rejected that knowledge and they made for themselves images of the creatures instead of the Creator. That's what they did right here in this verse. Exactly what Paul says all lost people do. Jesus made a shocking revelation for them in verse 17. My Father. That's shocking. Not to us because we say it all the time, but the Jews would have never spoken this way. They would have never dared called Yahweh their Father. Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, just, righteous, holy, all His attributes, that's fine, but don't cross the line of making Him a, 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 the transcendent God an imminent God. That was the problem with the Jews here. They said, He can't be this God. Jesus is not a good man. He is God. He is equal in quantity to God. John 1, 14 through 18, John says that He tabernacled with us. That we received the law, which is grace from Moses, and now we have received grace upon grace and truth in the glorious image of the Father, which is depicted for us in the Son, Jesus Christ. So what John said in chapter 1, grace upon grace and truth has come to us in Jesus, in equality with God. We see He is quantitatively the same. In John 17, 1 through 5, He even says of Himself, Lord, Father, glorify Yourself. Then he says, glorify me with you as I was before the world began. He claimed eternal nature, oneness with God in his prayer before he went to the cross. I am God. That's his claim. That's his own words. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says in verse 6, he is the image, he is the very image of God. The same God who spoke likeness into darkness speaks this light into your hearts, Paul said. He is God. That's the light of the gospel. It is that Jesus is God. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being equal with God did not count that as something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself and came in the form, even the form of a man. He's God in the flesh. Colossians 1, 19. It says, it pleased God that in him the fullness of God should dwell. He's quantitatively the same as God the Father. There's no distinction. And I want to clear up for you here, because it's going to be important as we go through the gospel. He set aside no part of his attribute when he came in the flesh. He did not set apart any of his characteristics. He was fully God in the flesh. You say he was omnipresent in the flesh? Yes. How? He's God. He's God. He even shows us He was omnipresent. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree when He wasn't there. 
with Him in person, yet He saw Him. He's omnipresent. He's righteous. He's omnipotent. He's just. He's loving. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's patient. He's kind. He's eternal. He's good. The fact is, Jesus Christ is not a good man. He is God in the flesh. That's who this story tells us He is. That's what the Bible says page after page. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says, He is the very brightness, the radiance of God. He's the radiance of the God, the very image of God. He is equal in quality to God. Not just quantity, but quality. He is the Creator. According to John 1.16, He made all things. In John 1.3, He made, through Him, He made all things. He's the sustainer. In Colossians 1.17, it says that in Him all things hold together. The picture is that Jesus Christ holds the world in His hands and binds it together by His very being. He is the Redeemer. Colossians 1.18-20 says, Paul says, He is the one we find reconciliation with the Father. Through Him, Jesus Christ, He is preeminent above all because He's the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer, and He is the Judge. The thing is that Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Carlton Weathers, and all of you will stand before one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the judge. John 5. Listen to His words. We'll get there as we go through the Scripture, but I want to read them for you. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and all of them will come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He is the just judge. What's the point? We're in this condition, you tell us. There is one solution, Jesus Christ. So what's the point? The point is this. It's very simple. You're here today in one of two states, one of two existence. And I think we have both here, just so you'll know. One group is here. And you, in essence, in who you are, are just like all of those men we've talked about. And today, you stand before, in judgment, God. And His wrath is being kindled up against you because you still stand by your own merits as good as they may be. And trust me, I believe there's some people in your room are very good. You've done good things. You've gone to church. You've said the right things. You read your Bible occasionally. But in your essence, you're rebelling against God. In the motivation of your heart, you say, I will project an image so they'll accept me, but in my heart I still treasure myself and my things and my life more than Jesus Christ. And so this message to you should say, 
I'm that guy. I'm an invalid. I'm hopeless. And I pray the Spirit makes clear to you in your heart that He is the answer, that Jesus Christ alone is the answer, the remedy for your brokenness. And then there's a second group of us here. And I believe there's a lot of us in this group. In essence, we're just like Jeffrey Dahmer, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and this invalid in the Bible. We're just like him in essence, in who we are, our natural state. But we have been changed, transformed to a new existence by the power and the grace of this Jesus who said, get up, take your bed, and walk. Some of you have heard Him say that in your own life. You've been freed from sin. But here's the thing. Now being freed, why do we then make ourselves slaves to that sin again? See, we are different. We are changed. But still inside of us is this dead natural man, this invalid, who cries out for attention, food. And we feed him. We feed him. How do we feed him? By loving ourselves, by loving our family more than Christ, by loving, by being motivated for our own good, for our own image. We feed the man. And he's powerful in our lives. And Christ, though He's there, seems to be subdued because we have made ourselves slaves again to this dead man. So what to do? What should we do? It's the same for both groups. There's one call. This is the call of the Scripture. Don't go work harder. Don't go be better. Cling to Christ. Because in Him, God has said yes to every promise. In Him, we find the completion, the fulfillment of everything the Scripture says. In Him, we find it. And so the The call for Christian and lost man is the same. You're not being singled out, in other words, lost man. In this crowd of sinners, there are sinners standing on their own merit and sinners covered by the merit of Christ. But we're all sinners. And we all are desperately to cry out to God, more grace, more mercy, more grace. Without it, I perish. Without it, I die. Without it, I'm in judgment. Cry out to Him. That's what this message should call for. Cry out to Him. And in humility, when we cry out with a contrite heart, He draws near. The truth is, if you're here and you're Dahmer, in heart or physically, either one. You haven't sinned enough that He can't forgive. And if you're here and you're religious, you're not good enough. 
that you don't need His forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, the message is simple, though we complicate it often in our life. The message of Your Word is call out. Call out broken, fallen, sinful people. Call out to this great God of heaven and earth who has come near to us, who has tabernacled with us, and who is sufficient to meet all of our needs. We are, God, dependent completely as we leave this place on Your grace. Your grace alone is what will sustain us. And I ask God that as we go forward in this week that we would often remember that we in substance and essence as a natural person are no different than any of the lost world but we have been substituted for. We have been changed, given a nature that is not our own through Jesus Christ, through grace, by faith. Lord, we love You. We leave this place now thanking You for Your gift of Yourself to us for eternity. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.